So can you read for us then, Terence? Um, from verse 12 to verse 17. Okay. Verse 12. But these, like natural brute breast, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness, as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime, they are spots and blemish and blemishes, carousing in their own deception while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in convertious, convertious practices and are accursed children they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam the son of Boar who loved the wages of unrighteousness but he was rebuked for his iniquity a damned donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained in the madness of the, of the prophet these are wells without water clouds carried by the tempest for whom it is reserved the blackness of darkness forever amen thank you so much terence quite a hard and harsh scripture reading right but let's start somewhere so what does it mean here when he says that they are like natural brute beasts and what does it mean when he says that they will utterly perish in their own corruption? The reason I want us to answer those questions is that in the answer to those questions lies the nature of a slippery path or, or the nature of a life that ventures into a slippery path. It says that they are like natural brute beasts and will utterly perish in their own corruption. What do you think? What is... Peter trying to describe? Well, to be described as natural brute beasts means that the basic animalistic nature in all of us is what is driving these people. You know, we said last week that force has an animalistic nature. That is to say, we have animalistic instincts, right? And those instincts by themselves are neither bad or good. We have an instinct for sleep, right? We have an instinct for, for, for sex. We have an instinct for rest. We have an instinct for, I don't know, relationships, for example. However, the difference between man and the, and the beast, the natural brute beast, is that God did not make us to be creatures of our instincts, right? God did not make us to be creatures that are driven by our innate nature rather god made us to be creatures that are in control that are that have dominion over ourselves and that direct our desires towards the will of god so to be described as a natural brute beast is a metaphor for enslavement to the desires of self it means to be without restraint right to be without mastery over self so the same mastery that is supposed to be the mark of a true man becomes lacking in the life of a man 
And if you look at our society, right, with alcoholism, drug addiction, for example, gambling and all this stuff, you see that what pornography, what happens with each of these vices is that a natural desire has been turned on its head and has become a driving force in someone's life. And then Peter says that they will utterly perish in their own corruption. That means they will be corrupted by their own corrupt living. And you see, this is the irony of sinful living. This is the irony of sensuality, right? That the very pleasures that I so wholeheartedly pursue to satisfy myself, I live for pleasure. I say to myself that the meaning of life is pleasure that those very pleasures become self-destructive. They become distasteful, right? They become the things that corrupt me beyond recognition. Yes, that's what he's saying. And that's what we have pointed out earlier to be the first judgment, right? For sin, my enslavement to it, my acceptance of it. The fact that I become corrupt in my own corruption to the point of spiritual blindness. That's what he means in verse 13 when he says that and will, they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. So the first, the first wage, the first salary, the first payment of unrighteousness is the corruption that comes into my soul because of it. And that's the thing, right? Because when, when, when people engage in corruption, you know, we've kind of had um, a, we, we, we've had a kind of, teaching culture that has made it appear as though okay if you engage in unrighteousness god is going to be really upset and he's going to send lightning and he's going to strike you right and then when people engage in unrighteousness and nothing happens externally at least right nothing happens there's, there's, in fact they can even speak in tongues if they were speaking in tongues before and they, they find out that their mental faculties are still functioning fine they can they can they can have a successful career despite living in iniquity right that delay in external judgment becomes a snare right that entrenches that wicked way in their hearts and in their lives but peter is revealing here that the fact that there's no external judgment does not mean that there is no judgment now we're going somewhere with all of this i know that this is a bit dark but it's necessary for us to um, really understand the nature of iniquity so that we can hate it. You know, the Bible says about Jesus in Psalm 45 that because you loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore your God has crowned you, right, with the oil of gladness above your fellows. I think that's what it says. If you don't hate iniquity, you will not be able to rescue someone who is bound by chains. And I can tell you that in my own small capacity, I've had to deal with people who are bound, severely bound by the things I'm talking about. So they are not abstract ideas to me, right? They are not just biblical concepts. They are practical realities. The extent to which you hate iniquity is the extent to which you will be fierce enough in your spirit to be able to become God's channel of liberty for those who are bound by it. So that's why we're taking the time to understand its very nature, that the first payment, the first wage of unrighteousness is the corruption that comes with it. And that's why 
these four stitches, when they stepped on this on the slippery path, that path of self-pleasure, you notice that they didn't step on it and step back. It led to a spiral. Right? And then he says, as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. So there are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery. Nobody starts like this. No, nobody starts like this. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Nobody begins like this. But when you step on the slippery path, it's inevitable that you will end up like this because the first judgment of sin is the enslavement to it. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are cursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam. So you see that, you know, I said last week that um, the major issue in the New Testament is not so much false prophecy. There is the issue of false prophecy for sure. The major issue is false teaching. And false teaching is not limited to what a person says. Remember when we did the doctrine of Christ, we said that the doctrine of Christ was a compendium of the things that he began to go to do and to teach. So the sum total of his doctrine was not the things he was saying alone, but first of all, the things he did. The things he did gave a platform, gave a foundation for the things he said. And if those two things were not in harmony, there would have been no doctrine of Christ. And in case there's a disharmony between the two, what you're doing and what you're saying, your real doctrine is what you're doing, not what you're saying. You know, everybody can preach about love. And that's what John was trying to help us discern in the book of 1 John. It doesn't matter what I say, but if I don't love my brother, I'm still in darkness. Right? And the darkness is thick. So you can see here, that um, this pattern of life was pioneered by Balaam. It's a way that was modeled by person. So it's important, right? When we begin to see the unrighteous prosper, when we begin to see people prosper by unrighteousness, that we take a step back and examine their way, examine where it is coming from, examine where it is headed, and not use what seems like external results to involve ourselves in what they're doing. So the Bible says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness and he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Where I was headed with all of this explanation was verse 17, which says that these are wells without water. Clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So the, I believe that this, this metaphoric language in verse 17 is giving you a template, like a lens for identifying a slippery path, for identifying someone who is on a slippery path, and also for identifying when your life as a believer has begun to go on the slippery path, even though you might still be speaking in tongues and even fasting. It says, these are wells without water. Clouds carried by tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
What do you understand by this metaphor here? Wells without water. Remember that Jude, when we did the book of Jude, used similarly colorful language, right? To describe the same set of people he was writing to. He called them, in verse 12, spots in your love feast. They feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water. So he described them as clouds without water. He described them as late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, <laughs> pulled up by the roots. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, describes his teachers um, as wells without water. Okay. Um, Mary writes in the chats that it means having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Okay, Sammy writes that their fruits do not correlate or relate with what they claim to be wells without water. Yeah, thank you so much for those thoughts. Yes, you're you're basically both on the right path. What it means to be wells without water is that there is the external manifestation of what looks like fruit, right? There's the external expression. There's the external noise, if you like. There is, there is enough initially to draw you in because if you see from afar that it is a well, right? You're going to be excited. You're going to be drawn to the well. But then what it means that they are without water is that they are lacking substance. And this is a very important principle, even as in our relationship with God, because it's very possible for us to get into a spirit of religion that does things without substance. If you remember when we did Hebrews chapter 9 and we looked at the true sanctuary, we said that true worship in that old, even in the old covenant sanctuary, was anything that had to go, was anything that happened be, beyond the veil. You know, there was a lot of activity that was happening. You know, the priests were, were, were in a continual procession of activity. But it's only when you went behind the veil that you could worship. And we did say, when we did that study, that true worship is every activity that happens behind the veil. And when we, when we um, place that in the context of man, we said it's anything that touches your conscience. You know, it's possible for you to be singing a worship song for one hour and it doesn't touch your conscience. Because the thing you have to understand about singing is that singing is melodious, right? It is, it is um, I don't know, it, is, it flows with the soul. The soul can do singing subconsciously. I don't know if you've ever caught yourself singing a song or attempting to sing a song that you shouldn't have been singing before you caught yourself. It's something that your soul can do passively, right? So it's very possible that in my prayer life, I am singing, but I don't mean the words. The reason I don't mean the words is that I'm not even paying attention to the words. I just like the song. Or maybe, which unfortunately is the case, the songs are not even, the, the songs don't even have the intention of leading me into the secret place in the first place. So it's possible that I can come and pray in tongues for one hour, but my heart is not in it. What I'm doing is what Hebrews also calls dead works. You know, when we did the doctrine of Christ and we looked at repentance from dead works, we had many definitions for dead works, right? The primary definition of dead works, the theologically correct primary definition of dead works 
is every work that is aimed at gaining acceptance before God, right? Based on merit. So I know that, okay, if I pray two hours, I've been taught that if I pray two hours, God will be happy with me because I've logged in my hours. So I'm just here doing the motions, you know? Those are dead works. Any activity that does not go beyond the veil. The Bible calls it wells without water. It, it, it has a form of godliness. It has the fruit. It has the flowering, but it lacks the substance. Friends, you and I must, must, must beg God for the substance. And it's important for us not to misunderstand what, what I mean when I say substance, right? Because um, this has also been a source of deception because some people misinterpret substance to mean material substance. Some people's doctrine is that is that is that um, what's what's it called? The end justifies the means. So if someone is praying and trusting God, and it doesn't seem to be an outcome to that effort, and somebody else went to Prophet X Y Z, who is a false prophet, and they apparently got an immediate result, <laughs> then they have substance. Well, friends, substance is spiritual. Remember this: substance is spiritual. Abraham trusted God for 30 years for his son. In those 30 years, all he had was substance. You might look at Abraham and say, whichever God it is that you met that gave you this promise, I don't need that God. How can he know that you're 70 and he's making you wait for 30 years before he gives you a son? Everybody else around you, the people that don't know how to speak in tongues, people that don't know how to fast, people that are not as holy as you, they have babies. But you see, now, of course, it's possible to be in that state of childlessness and be without substance. That's not what we're referring to. In Abraham's case, Abraham had a substance. There was, there was something that had gone on between his spirit and with God. And that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 that he staggered not at the promise of God. He didn't stagger at it. So the question is do you have a substance? If you remember when there was a dispute between the headsmen of Abraham and the headsmen of Lot, right? And Abraham said, you know, it's not proper that as brothers, you know, as relatives, we should be fighting over land. So, you know, just choose choose whichever land that you want. And I will take the other one. Any, any, it was a blank check he gave to Lot. The Bible says that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the plains of Sodom. Now, by the end of that transaction, our modern generation, right, will call Abraham a fool and will say Lord has won it because everything on the outside gave testimony to the fact that his decision, whatever God he was serving, whatever principle by which he made his choices was the right principle. But you see, substance, spiritual substance has absolutely nothing to do with the material. Now, of course, if there is spiritual substance, it's eventually going to birth the material manifestation. The Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, of the evidence of things not yet seen. Those things are real, but not yet seen. And you see, at the end of the story, the man who had substance became the father of many nations. And the one who took, who took the green fields when judgment came upon Sodom, he left with himself only. He didn't even get his wife out with him so that what looked like breakthrough what looked like enlargement became nothing 
You see, if you if you want to understand this this issue of substance, we, you need to carefully investigate the life of Abraham because that's how God trained Abraham through the principle of substance. That if you have a substance in your heart, it doesn't matter if the entire world is going in the other way. You can see that there is a popular prophet, and everybody you know is going to that prophet, but you have a substance, and and that's God will not explain to you why you should not go. He will only give you a substance. After Abraham came back from delivering Lot, right? From the hands of those five kings that, that captured him and the entire Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that the king of Sodom came and he came to confer wealth upon Abraham. You know, that, that, that scenario is the story of our breakthroughs. He came to confer wealth. He said, you can keep the sheep, the cattle, the, the gold. Just give me the people. And what did Abraham say? He said, he said, he said, before you came, I met Melchizedek. I met him. I met him. I met the endless one, the one whose priesthood has no end. He gave me bread and wine. And I've raised up my hand before the Lord. You see, for you to see millions of dollars in our modern context, for, for you to see it, financial security forever for you to see it and say no is because you have a substance meanwhile there there will be many who who don't have a substance right what they have is suddenly results maybe whatever it is on the outside that looks like the substance but peter refers to them as wells without water when next that you are trying to discern if something is the will of God for you or not, if you're supposed to follow this person or not, for example, forget about what might look like the external evidence, right? Because unfortunately, in our day, because of social media, the issue of the manipulation of evidence has been amplified beyond what any of us can recognize. There is nothing on social media about a person that is sufficient reason for you to tell that your, that your destiny is supposed to be tied to this person. No. The only thing that can tell you is the substance. Because when men fail, when men fail, because they will fail, when men fail, you will still have the substance. That's how to be a well with water. And that's how not to be a well without water. We must cry to the Lord that our Christianity will not be shadows only. But that even if, yes, we don't see the physical manifestation of the breakthrough immediately, may it be that at every step we have a substance. That if you ask us, why is this thing delaying? We have a substance. If you ask us, why did this breakthrough happen? We have a substance. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? Um, any thoughts or questions to move on? Okay. So this is what is lacking in every deceptive scheme of the enemy. There is a lot of external manifestation but no substance no reality and remember when we did Mark chapter 11 the spirit of faith we saw how Jesus cursed the fig tree because when he looked at it from far it had leaves 
you know, it had so much blossom. And so he was expecting that he would find fruit on it. And when he came, there was no fruit. And that curse was a symbolic gesture targeted at every religious activity that has the outward for and it doesn't matter if it is me who's doing it or if it is you who's doing it or if it is the unbeliever who's doing it every form of religious activity that cleans the outside and has the outward manifestations of of leaves but lacks the fruit the fruits that only god can give jesus cursed it he wants to have nothing to do with it and that's why Jesus is compared to the vine. You see, the vine is that tree that doesn't blossom much, but it fruits much. You know, there are some trees that they have more leaves than fruit. And God made all of them, right? Some of them are for are pleasant to the eyes. You know, that's what Genesis tells us. They are pleasant to the eyes. But when it came to describing Jesus, the tree that God used was the vine. The one that does not blossom too much. Not you, you, you may not see that one on social media, right? You may not see that one with so many followers. You may not see that one on the news, right? But it fruits much, fruits much. If anybody has fruit, not just leaves, if anybody has fruit, it can only come from the Holy Ghost. And that's the burden I want to leave on your heart tonight, even as you continue reading. That you cry to the Lord that you, you will fruit much. Yes, that you will fruit much, that you will produce much fruit, that there will be substance to everything about you, substance to it. Okay, then. Can you read for us, Terence, from verse 18 to verse 22? All right. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allude through the lust of the flesh, through loudness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. And this was and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to go, not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it, has happened, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a soul having washed to her, wallowing in the mare. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. So verse 18 is a continuation of what we have said before. It says, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the loss of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So you and I have escaped from error by, by virtue 
of the forgiveness of our sins by the by virtue of our inclusion in Christ. And we must remember that we have escaped, right? No matter how alluring temptation is, we have escaped. Many people argue about certain things. Is it in the Bible or not? The Bible does not explicitly say that X is right or that Y is wrong. Right? The Bible is quiet on X and Y. We must be aware, friends, that we have escaped. And anything that has the capacity to bring us into bondage must be thoroughly avoided. Because, like we have seen, there is a dire judgment that awaits a life that is lived to fulfill the lust and the desires of self. And we said that that first judgment is the enslavement to self. Right? Look at what it says in verse 19. Verse 19 reveals to us a, a law in the spirit. A, now, you know that a law is something that is almost always cons constant, right? You cannot fast and pray a law away. The best you can do to a law is to discover another law that helps you overcome it. But the law is constant. If the law of gravity was not constant, we will not be able to fly any airplanes. The reason we're able to do that is that we are reliant on the fact that certain laws of, of nature that God put in there are constant. And that's what a law means. It's, that's part of what it means. That it's, it's, It doesn't change. We've said many times that none of us can break the laws of God. Rather, what happens is that the laws of God break us eventually. And that is what, if we violate them, right? And that is what verse 19 is saying, right? That while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, right? For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. This is the law. This is a law in the spirit. Now, the reason I'm highlighting that this is a law in the spirit is that I want to switch to show us how you can get out of the slippery path, right? How you can get out of any slippery path that has led you down a road that you did not want to follow, right? Anything that has become cyclical, that apparently has overpowered your will. First, Second Peter 2 verse 19 says that, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also, he is brought into bondage. Now, to show you that this is a spiritual law, we need to look at Jesus restating this principle in John chapter 8, verse 34, very quickly. Because Jesus was saying to the Jews, right? Um, well, let's read from verse 31 for context. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So you can see the progression. They are believers in Jesus. But the fact that one is a believer does not mean that that one has embraced the path of discipleship yet. So Jesus is unveiling the next, the next step on the course. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Verse 32 then talks about the pathway of freedom. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered and said to him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? You know, that's what some, some Christians believe, unfortunately, because as Christians, we are descendants of Abraham. And so some people believe that it's not possible for me as a, as a, as a descendant of Abraham to be bound by anything. If I find myself bound by anything, then I'm not really bound. It's the will of God for me. <laughs> 
Jesus clears their doubts in verse 34. He says, most assuredly, you know, this is Jesus speaking, the creator of the world. He doesn't need to use most assuredly. He can just say what he's saying and it is true, but he wants you to be assured that this is the case, that this is a fact and this is a law. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And then he goes on to talk about sonship and the principles of sonship, which are exciting, but which will distract us if we get into it right now. But this is the same principle that Peter was mentioning, right? That whatever it is that overcomes me, right, becomes my master. Now, the same principle is mentioned in Romans chapter 6, verse 16 by Paul um, in his discourse on should we continue in sin that grace may abound. He says in verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself? So he expands on what Jesus said, that for you to have gotten into slavery, and the reason you got into slavery was because you presented yourself. You know that if somebody forces you, forces alcohol into your mouth, right? It's not possible that you can become an alcoholic because of that. The thing that makes you an alcoholic is the alcohol that you drank yourself, right? You, you, you had money, you looked at the money, you took the money, you went and bought alcohol, you sat down, and you, that's the one that can make you a slave. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death. So you see why I was praying about deliverance from death earlier on when we started. That sin is eventually leading to death. Or of obedience leading to righteousness. So the first thing to realize here right, is that um, if you want to break out of a slippery path, you need to realize that amongst many things, the, the way you got into this slippery path was by a choice that you made, right? It was by a, a choice that you made, and it was not a one-time choice. It was not even a two-time choice. It was not a three-time choice. Yes, demons, Satan, whatever circumstances may have manipulated the choice, but you see, it was still your choice, right? And it's and that choice has brought someone to the place where they are now completely overcome by sin. So there is a place, and we're going to talk about it, where we can cast out the demon, right? Of course, can cast it out, for example. It's a place where we can break the curse because it's possible that by your indulgence in something, you have attracted a spirit that cannot be cast out, but a spirit that is like a curse, right? And the power of that curse needs to be broken for you to be free. We can break the curse, right? And whatever it is that are um, appendages of that bondage can be broken in an instant. But you see, a nature that was created by yielding, by presenting yourself, that nature can eventually only be overpowered by also presenting yourself. The extent to which you yielded your members as instruments of unrighteousness is the same extent eventually to which you have to yield your members unto righteousness. So the first thing to do, right, is to identify the root of the issue. Right? 
uh, many things that we see on the as compelling behaviors, as slippery behaviors, as the kind of things that were listed in this letter, in this letter, they are they are surface symptoms. Alcoholism is a symptom of a of a deeper problem. So is gambling. Gambling, the Bible makes it very clear that that things like gambling are you can trace their roots to the love of money. And then when you go down, you 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 ask a question. Okay, why is there an obsession with money, with loving money that is creating gambling in 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 like in a compulsive way in someone's life? You must identify the root of the problem. Right, it's very important to identify it so that you don't deal with symptoms only, but you deal with the root of the issue. Now, after you have identified the root of the problem, there's something the Bible says in Second Corinthians chapter ten which everybody who will walk away from the slippery path, who will step off it, who will be free from the slippery path, must know. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 6 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We walk in the flesh. There's nobody that can escape that. We are physical beings. However, our warfare is not according to the flesh. Then it says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into the captivity, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Before we read verse 6, Paul is saying that the weapons of our warfare are not a hit and miss affair. And this is important because some people would say, oh, we've tried so many things to be free and nothing has worked. And because of that, a lot of people's faith is punctured. This scripture does not give the impression God is saying, um, there are these weapons, you can try them, good luck if it works. He's saying that the weapons of our warfare, they are mighty true God. They are effective. They always win if applied correctly. They always win. Do not let Satan convince you or convince anybody you're trying to help that a situation is beyond recovery. The weapons of our warfare, they are mighty true God. They can pull down strongholds. Strongholds are places from, from where demons manipulate people. So the strongholds themselves are not demons per se. They are rather places from where demons manipulate people so they are thought patterns thinking patterns logic patterns behavior patterns you know whatever it is that has formed a stronghold and that's what we're referring to as the root of the problem right that has formed a stronghold from which satan assaults the mind says that the weapons we have can pull them down and cast down argument can cast down every pride that rises itself, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and it can bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The six tells us the condition for applying any weapon in spiritual warfare. And this is often the missing piece anytime we mention spiritual warfare. Whenever we mention spiritual warfare, people think that we are inviting them to take up arms and start fighting. But you see, we did it. We said it when we did Ephesians chapter 6, if you remember, that your greatest weapon, your greatest weapon in warfare 
is not your ability to fight, but your alignment with Jesus. He says, I'm being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You know, that great scripture of protection, Psalm 91, begins by saying, he who dwells, he who dwells, the one who abides, the one who is aligned with Jesus. Everything else that follows in that psalm applies to that one. That's the condition. He who dwells. So you must arrive at the place of aligning with Jesus about whatever the issue is. If I'm at the place where I am still debating whether my whether my choices right are wrong or not, or whether they are really wrong, then it's unlikely that I'll be free from them, right? If I'm in the place where Jesus has put it in my heart that this thing you have done, you need to go and confess it to someone. And I'm, you know, struggling and trying to handle it by myself. You know, it's unlikely I'm going to know the victory of Jesus. He says that you do not attempt to, to fight, to apply the weapons until your obedience is fulfilled. And I find that when it comes to strongholds, the main area of disobedience usually is in the issue of pride. If normally you can find wherever it is that pride is having a hold on you and you can deal with it, then the issue of obedience usually in spiritual way can be settled. Because Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So in what aspect of my life am I not able to come to Jesus? Is it the aspect where he wants me to talk to somebody else? Is it the aspect where he wants me to forgive somebody? Is it the aspect where he wants me to, you know, do something, you know? So I must, I must agree with Jesus about my condition. Yes, I must agree with Jesus about my condition. I must, I must, na I must name my sin, right? And it doesn't matter if I think it's a small sin. As long as Jesus has, has you know, impressed it upon my heart that this thing is not good. The way your eyes have been working the past two days is not good. I must, I must agree with Jesus about it. If I don't, everything else that I'm going to do in, in the form of spiritual warfare is just going to be punching the air. It's going to be wells without water. It's not going to have substance. And so you might ask me then, what are some of these weapons? So let's look at, as we close, let's look at Second Corinthians chapter 6. We're not able to read um, for deeper context, but I want to highlight the three most important ones. From verse 4 of Second Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. Now, Paul is telling us that this is the attack that Satan instigated against his life, his ministry, right? Satan introduced tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, fastings. These fastings <laughs> is not a spiritual endeavor, it is lack of food essentially. So this is Satan playing his card in the life of Paul. And then verse 6 tells us the inward qualities, right? The inward attitudes that Paul needed to be able to 
outlast this battle. The first one is by purity. And this is what we mean when we say that my alignment with God is my primary weapon. You know, some people try to downplay the issue of alignment. Some people have even said that, <laughs> well, let's not go into that. But some people downplay the issue of alignment and think that maybe we're being a bit too intense when we talk about alignment. But you see, your alignment is all you have in the battlefield. It's all you have. You know that the way God located Israel, it's an impossible location. Israel is sandwiched from the north to the east, to the west, to the south by enemies. If that nation, like <laughs> their situation was made very clear to them by their geography, if you're going to be a nation, you're going to need to be angulated to Yahweh. So alignment with him <clears throat> that will determine your survival as a nation. So these are the inward attitudes that he had. By, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. They are the inward attitudes that we have. And now verse 7 tells us the weapons, the external weapons that he deployed to, to destroy the power of Satan. The first was by the word of truth. By the word of truth. It's necessary that in every area of contention, that I press into the Holy Ghost for the word of truth, for the testimony of Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, Paul said that, do you not know? I think I need to digress for one second and just read it so that we don't quote it wrongly. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For me, this was the scripture, one of the scriptures that God used as a weapon of truth. Because growing up, Satan convinced me that it's not possible to live above sin. Yes, and I'm not telling you stories. I'm telling you that this was what I believed. I believed it, that it was not possible, that some everybody's hiding something somehow. Until I read this, he said, knowing this, because it's possible that you, you may not know this, that our old man was crucified with him so that the, the body of sin might be done away with. I'm not telling you that I'm sinless, right? But I can tell you that by the grace of God, the power of sin does not rule my life by the grace of God. So you see that for, for my life, for your life, we need to locate the word of truth. It's a weapon that we deploy in our mind to cast down imaginations, to pull down thoughts. It's a weapon. We need to fellowship with the Holy Spirit until truth is furnished in our hearts. Just in case there's a delay in your life about something that the Lord has spoken to you about, you need to fellowship with the Holy Spirit until the word of truth comes. Ah, when the word of truth comes, I tell you, just like Abraham, you wouldn't mind waiting 30 years. I'm not saying that you wait 30 years. But we need to ask ourselves, what made him wait 30 years? What made him take Isaac to Mount Moriah, right? And attempt to kill him. By the word of truth. By the testimony of the ultimate truth, of the one who is truth. Let everything else be a lie and let God be true. 
Let my experience be a lie and let God be true. Let the pain in my body be a lie and let God be true. Let the weakness in my body be a lie and let God be true. You see, I found that for many people who are trying to come out of addiction, one of the ways that Satan keeps them in that is that they arrive at the place where they repent and confess and all of this stuff and even break things. And then they believe that they are free, right? But then after maybe like a week or two weeks or, or whatever period of time, they fall back into sin, right? Because remember that you presented your bodies, you yielded, so a nature has been formed. And so that nature rises up and they fall back into sin. And then Satan announces to them that, you see, after all this, your prayer and fasting and casting down, you still fell into this thing. You see, the question you're supposed to ask him is, if I prayed, I fasted, and I still fell, what will happen if I don't pray and fast? Right? And then you discard that lie. You see, the worst thing you can do is to run away from God because you fell into sin. Because then you're running away from the only solution to the problem. If it is true that you exercised your faith and you received your liberty from God, then let your experience be a lie. Yes, let every time you fall be an opportunity to hold on to the truth. I assure you, it will not be a long time before, before whatever it is will be a thing of the past. That's the first weapon, by the word of truth. Second weapon is by the dunamis of God, by the power of God. Friends, in Christianity, we often believe that when we pray and say, God, I want you to do something, that what usually happens is God, God gets up from the throne and then he said, hey, um, Nancy wants this thing, right? So God begins to labor. He begins to summon angels and say, make sure that this thing is delivered to Nancy by nine o'clock tomorrow morning. See if that's how prayer worked. All of us, none of us will have prayer cases that we are still waiting for answers for. Because to see what is in doubt is not the benevolence of God, right? It's not the benevolence. God is good. He wants to bless you. What is in doubt is not the ability of God. But you see, God has determined it is a sovereign decree. And that's how God decided it. That the only way he will work on earth is through a man or a woman. It means that many times when we begin to pray, God is hoping that we will generate sufficient power. <laughs> we will generate, let me put it this way, we will generate sufficient incense that will release the required measure of power to address the situation. Have you noticed that some situations, Christian A prays for the situation, nothing happens. Christian B Praise for the same situation. Something happens. God does not have favorites. The power of God is a resource in the kingdom. And it so happens to be that it takes measures of incense to release the power of God. So just in case you are, you, you've been praying about a sickness, about a situation, and it has not changed, that has nothing to do with, with God hearing the prayer or not. Keep generating power by the power of God. There is a measure of power that you can generate by the Holy Ghost and you will walk free. The chain will break off your neck. Just keep generating power. And one of the reasons why God allows it to happen like that is because 
that process of generating power builds up our capacity. The power of God is a weapon. And you see, the power of God, friends, does not come by saying prayers. No, it comes by making prayers. When Peter was arrested and put in prison after James had been beheaded, had been beheaded by Herod, the disciples were not saying prayers. The Bible says that prayers were made day and night. You, you might ask me, why did it take day and night prayers for several days for Peter to be released? God wants it to work like that, that, that we will be his ambassadors on earth. We will be his representatives on earth. And that is the glory of God to hide the thing and is the glory of man to search it out. And that the extent to which the power of God will be released on the earth is the extent to which we, we are willing to partner with him to generate that power. That's why the word is dunamis. Dunamis is resident power. So in case there is a, there is a mountain before you, well, one solution is that you can look for a fellow brother or sister who has generated enough power and together you can pull it down easily. Yes, that's a good solution. But in case you are left alone to yourself, by the grace of God, you can generate power. And the way to generate power is praying in the Holy Ghost. That's what Jude 20 says. And you, beloved, building up yourselves, praying in the Spirit. Of course, we've talked about praying in the Spirit before. It's not all about tongues. Praying in the spirit. And finally, the weapon he lists here, the final weapon he lists here, external weapon, is the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left hand. I believe that the reason why this description is used, righteousness on the left hand and on the right hand, and in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the breastplate of righteousness, which has the same idea of, of left and right is that he's talking about in your internal righteousness, which is a free gift of God on one hand. You must hold on to that righteousness because I tell you, the accuser will accuse you. Yes. And yes, there are times you need to repent and you must repent. But you must um, make a difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the accuser because that's his name, Satan. The word devil means accuser. That's his portfolio. That's his assignment. He accuses. So you're going to need a righteousness that is superior to the accusations of Satan. And that one is a free gift. But you're also going to need a righteousness that is a consequence of obedience to God. Yes. So if God tells you to sow a seed, let it be by faith an act of righteousness. Yes. Righteousness on the right hand and on the left hand. There is no one who deploys these weapons that will not be free from the slippery path. And in case the situation has gone too deep, or you know someone who the situation has gone too deep, the person may not be able to help themselves out, but we are in this Bible study because God has called us to help them out. I see that the glory of God wants to return to our generation. And one of the marks of the return of that glory is that God will begin to set captives free. Yes, that it is, the, it is the day of the Lord's favor again. And that especially amongst our young people, those who are bound in wells without water, bound by addictions, bound by drugs, bound by pornography, bound by gambling, bound by alcoholism, bound by the power of Satan, 
that part of what will announce the return of the glory of God to our territories, to our families, will be that the prisoners will be loosed. That's my prayer, that every working of death, every activity of death, every trace of death will be obliterated from our space, that the power of God will be manifest, and that the glory of God will be revealed in great measure. In Jesus' name, amen.